Greetings, everyone, and welcome back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, and I'm thrilled today to have a congratulatory, celebratory version of the podcast. I have with me here the two um, winners of the professional category in the annual CNO Naval History Essay Contest. We've had our awards ceremony here this morning during the Naval Institute's uh, History Conference here in Beach Hall. And we're coming to you from the studios of Beach Hall. And I'm here to welcome our winners and uh, congratulate them. And um, I look forward to having them in the magazine in the coming year. Uh, To my um, far distance here is uh, Andrew Blackley, who once again won second prize this year for his article, An Object Lesson on Allied Interoperability, the Failure of the ABDA Command, 1942. First prize winner is right here next to me, Lieutenant Colonel Pete Owen, United States Marine Corps, retired whose winning article in this year's contest was Marine Aviation in the Pacific War, the right tool to support the fleet, but seldom the landing force. Um, I'm currently editing Pete's here for the uh, upcoming issue, and I can tell you it's a, a great, solid piece of historical research and writing, and you all have something to look forward to with your January-February issue, uh, which we're currently working on as we speak. And Andrew, it's great to have you back. Um, Andrew won second prize last year as well. And it's always a pleasure to have you in the magazine. Thank you. Um, the theme of this year's was uh, uh, how do we meet rising threats uh, in the Indo-Pacific, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, lessons from the past that apply to any kind of geopolitical situation today. Uh, that's the nature of this uh, essay contest. And um, Andrew, we'll start with you in your second prize entry because you picked a very timely topic, um, the ABDA command, the Aust- American, British, Dutch, and Australian command that was cobbled together um, in the exigencies of uh, Pearl Harbor and didn't last but more than a couple months. And it's kind of a famous uh, failed alliance. And that's kind of something important in that part of the world these days. And you weren't the only entry that covered this because it is such a um, perfect analogy for today. Uh, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, what you came up with in working on this. Sure. Well, um, so I was inspired... to be honest, looking at doing essays, I look back and look at the ones that won in the past, right? So it gets some clue about what the judges like to see. So one of the obvious things was to look back at the guidance that uh, the CNO would would issue uh, to the Navy in general, and and I, that was the first thing I did. The Advantage at Sea publication of 2020, where Admiral Gilday and the other chiefs of the Sea Services laid out. Uh, their guidance for how to deal with the China-Russia challenge. And in particular, what caught my eye was that they were highlighting the strategic advantage that we have uh, over those uh, countries in the alliances that we have, that currently exist. So we have historic alliances that have been in place since the Second World War. And in addition to that, we have alliances with countries such as uh, Japan and South Korea uh, that came about post-war. Uh, and the alliance structure in the Pacific has been has had its ups and downs. There was a, a an, or, an organization that your, people are going to be familiar with, CETO, that was sort of a, a uh, analogous to NATO, but it it collapsed after the um, after the Vietnam War. Uh, when New Zealand declared itself to be uh, anti-nuclear, uh, the U.S. sort of withdrew from any agreements we had with New Zealand. Uh, they were an important partner, obviously, during the Second World War. Um, So looking back at the uh, American, British, Dutch, Australian command, and I have to say I talked to an Australian historian who insists that it should be the Australian, British, Dutch, American command. (laughs) 
So at any rate, um, the United States at that time in 19, uh, going into late 41, early 42, did not have any alliances with anyone in the, wor in the world at that point. They had been talking with uh, the British. Uh, the, the, uh, the, they had not yet really formed the combined chiefs of staff, but there were talks in 1940 and 41 towards naval cooperation. Uh, FDR was very big on it, but the United States was officially neutral. Uh, we were already in sort of a shooting war with the Germans. The, the Reuben James was torpedoed and sunk by a U-boat in uh, October of 1941. Uh, so it was sort of a uh, hot cold war going on. We had troops uh, occupying Iceland uh, so that would free up British troops to, to, to be used elsewhere. But So that was the structure. So there was definite talk going on about how to conduct a European war, and everyone hoped that there would not be a war in the Pacific. And in fact, the planners uh, at the War Plans Division uh, in the CNO's office were telling the president, do not start anything yet. We are not ready to fight. But as been pointed out, the uh, FDR uh, clapped embargoes on Japan on steel and, and oil, in which they were highly dependent on us for those raw materials, and that was just uh, too much for Japan to tolerate. And so they knew that there, a war was coming. There were war um, warnings issued in late November. Uh, it was fortuitous that the carriers were out of Pearl Harbor because they were out um, transporting aircraft to Wake Island, and that's and knowing that and they had orders to shoot, basically, at anything that couldn't identify itself. So they knew a war was coming, uh, and they were surprised that, however, with the, the sort of the ingenious uh, capabilities of the, of the Japanese, they're simultaneously attacking Pearl Harbor, Wake Island, Hong Kong, um, and then uh, launching attacks on Clark Field in the Philippines, wiping out the U.S. Air Force practically in one, in one fell blow. Uh, also destroying all the torpedo reloads at, at uh, Subic Bay. So they acted very quickly. Uh, within a couple of days, they sank the, the Repulse and the Prince of Wales, the main uh, battleships of the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy ceased to pretty much exist uh, uh, east of uh, the Malay barrier. So that was what they were faced with in, in, in late 1941. Uh, and so they formed this, uh, this command that was one of the significant things about it, it is, in fact, the first joint allied command, so it did provide a template for how that could be done. And it was done with all goodwill. There was a lot of cooperation and a lot of good intent in doing it, but just because they had very little time to prepare, and they came from different military cultures. There was a language barrier, obviously, with the Dutch. Uh, there were no common commonality of, of tactical doctrine. Uh, they all were... Each United States, Britain, and the Dutch were colonialists, so-called, in those areas, and they had their own uh, strategic uh, objectives. So the British wanted to hold Singapore at all costs. The Dutch obviously wanted to, to hold Java. And if we remember, you know, the Netherlands itself had already fallen, and this was an outpost of the free Netherlands uh, in the Far East. But at the same time, they had very little financial or, or any other kind of logistical support from their home country. So they were in a very tough situation. Mm -hmm. So that's what the command was faced with. Um, they brought in uh, General Wavell from uh, India. He is better known in, in uh, he actually was a very good general, but he was not up to par with Rommel. So he would have been, Churchill replaced him with uh, uh, Auchinleck in, in North Africa and sent him to India. He was made the first 
commander. So the first commander of, uh, and the only commander of ABDACOM was a British general. Uh, then for parity, they had um, uh, Thomas uh, C. Um, Hart, who was the commander of the Asiatic uh, fleet, would be the Navy commander for the combined fleets of, of, the, of the Dutch, the Americans, and the British. But that also created problems. MacArthur, uh, at the same time, there was a massive failure in the Philippines. Uh, the air, U.S. air power was totally suppressed. The Japanese, uh, the, the, the few submarines that we had in the Philippines were incapable of stopping uh, the transport fleets. The Japanese successfully landed on Luzon. Uh, MacArthur's illusions about the ability of the Philippine army to fight were shattered in a very short order, and they found themselves in retreat. So all these pre-war preconceptions that they had. I mean, the British seriously believed that the Japanese would not make good fighter pilots because they wore glasses. You know, you know these silly racial stereotypes that they had a real belief in. And uh, the British were using second-rate aircraft. All mm -hmm. their top aircraft were in Europe, the Spitfire, and so on. They had the Brewster Buffalo and all hurricane fighters. Uh, we had the P-40, which was a good fighter and capable hands, but none of those were really matches for the Zero. So the Japanese were coming in with, with better organization, better technology, and, and a unified command. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard enough that they were in the face of that Japanese juggernaut that just was unstoppable in late 41, early 42, but regardless of that, um, there are a lot of lessons to be learned about inter-allied operability in there. We'll get to those lessons learned as we go further on. But I was really um, fascinated and kind of pleased, actually, to see that the two top professional historian winners in the contest were both Pacific War topics. And um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pito, and I'm working on yours right now, and I have to tell you uh, my compliments to you on the, the, uh, the level of uh, detailed, granular research in here. I've learned a lot just editing this article. Um, not uh, about marine aviation, but you go down in the weeds of what exactly they do, which could defy expectations based on marine doctrine, and when in the war it was that they were very much a concentrated force. Other times they're kind of fallow. Um, but you got onto this idea because of its applied, applied history uh, relevance, and uh, maybe you can start off by telling us about what prompted you to delve into this further for relevance for today. Sure, Eric. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, and and before I do, I want to say that it's really cool to be on the podcast. I'm somebody who listens to this podcast often. And so for all of you listeners, whoever wonder, wow, I wonder what it would be like to be on the podcast with Eric and all these guys. It is really cool. Um, well, thank you. Yes, so, it's great to have you on. The um, so I I wanted to do something relevant. So I'm you know I've written some history books since I retired from the Marine Corps and and I teach for the Marine Corps University part time. And then I got the opportunity to work on a PhD. When I was selecting something for the dissertation, I really wanted to do something that would be relevant to the naval services today. I didn't want a dissertation that would be obscure that only my supervisor and my and my and myself would be familiar with. So when I heard about the Commandant's new planning guidance and, and where the Marine Corps is shifting from being the 911 force in, in readiness and assaulting uh, amphibious objectives uh, to open up things for a joint campaign, and we're now shifting to be a force multiplier for the fleet, 
to help the fleet establish air superiority and sea control, I thought, that sounds familiar. That sounds like what I generally understand the Marines did in, in, in World War II, but I didn't know a lot about it. I had to dig into it. Um, and, and like a lot of uh, Pacific history buffs or Marine Corps history buffs, when you think Marine Corps aviation, World War II, it's like, well, you know about Wake Island. That was great. And you, maybe you know a little bit about Midway, and that wasn't so great. And everybody knows about the Cactus Air Force on Guadalcanal. And, and everybody knows about Pappy Boynton and the Baw Baw Black Sheep and the Time of the Aces. And then that's kind of it. And, and they're like, wow. And then w when I dug into this, I realized there was almost 100 squadrons of Marine aviation. That's staggering. Uh, deployed to the Pacific. There was even more that, that never made it overseas. And I'm like, well, what were all these squadrons doing? And I think what they were doing was what General Berger's talking about, is they were fighting from the shore to help the fleet establish and maintain sea control. And then I said, well, how could I prove that? And, and my, my college is really good. My college is the Royal Military College, but they're really tough. And they make you do this rigorous historical analysis. So I said, well, um, it would be too hard to try and count up sorties. The, the record evidence isn't there, and missions would be really hard. But as a former Marine, you know, I kind of equate deployments with months. Like, you know, you, you deploy for this many months to this many places, you do these types of things. So, so what I did was I looked at these hundred squadrons, and I made a spreadsheet, because I'm a spreadsheet buff, and I said, okay, for every month, like, what did they do? Did they support a landing force ashore by dropping bombs in front of them or did they help the fleet establish and maintain air superiority or did they defend an island base or whatever and i tabulated all this when i was all done it was the results were a little more profound than i was expecting so what i figured is even being very generous with categorizing a particular squadron's month action as supporting a landing force somewhere i gave them credit for that if they only flew one mission one day uh, and still, what I came up with was the answer was that marine aviation supported the fleet about five times more than it supported landing forces ashore. And I said, well, that's pretty interesting. And I know that I know that General Berger is getting a, a, a little bit of um, criticism from retired generals, from Defense Policy Act uh, experts who, you know, you know, quite understandably are urging caution as the Marine Corps makes this ship because the Marine Corps has been a really essential, critical part uh, of, of the Department of Defense since 1950 as being this Marine Air Ground Task Force, Force in Readiness, Amphibious Expeditionary Force, and, and fundamentally changing that involves risk, as General Berger has acknowledged. But I thought, well, you know, if there's any role that history should provide to people who are making decisions, it's we should be intellectually honest about what our history shows. And so I think the evidence shows that there is a precedent for this, and it's not all terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it seems counterintuitive to what their doctrine would be, which is to support the landing forces. But when you look at what they actually did, which you do, um, great data in this article. You're gonna, you folks are going to love it. You realize that, um, as you point out, five times more they were supporting the fleet, but that's kind of the, that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? It's, uh, it shows the, um, I don't know, the versatility. You know, once you get into the thick of the Pacific War, you do what needs doing, and there's a versatility to uh, the marine aviation weapon, if you will. And um, that, to me, sounds like a win-win. Um, would you agree? It's not a bad thing. That I 
I, I do, and and certainly the caution comes from every Marine gets drilled into, you know, where at Paris Island, my drill instructors taught me, you know, it's like the whole Marine Corps is there to support the rifleman, and and that's an under that's a fundamental part of how the Marine Corps approaches warfare, but the the tool the job the fleet needed done in 1942, 43, 44, 45, it was a tough job. It was a job Marine aviation was prepared to do, but it wasn't supporting riflemen ashore. It was supporting the fleet. It was operating on these austere locations in the Solomons, contested airspace where they're, you know, they're under uh, threat of air attack, of naval bombardment, under ground attack or, or at least indirect fire on their airfields, and it, they're miserable conditions and logistics are, are fouled up. Uh, but marine aviation was able to be a combat multiplier for the fleet by operating from those austere locations mm -hmm. uh, in, in the southwest Pacific, um, and then and then continued it throughout the war in a, in a number of different places. And they did support landing forces, uh, especially on Okinawa. That was a huge success of providing direct support to the landing force. Uh, but what they also did in the last year of the war that was a huge success was they put Marine Corsairs aboard the fast carriers, Task Force 58, to protect the fleet from kamikazes because the fleet needed to increase the uh, percentage of fighter aircraft in its carrier air wings uh, and reduce the number of torpedo bombers. They looked around like, we don't have a lot of extra fighter planes, but the Marines have Corsairs and that would be the perfect weapon. So they quickly qualify Marine eight Marine squadrons for the fast carriers and they do a great job protecting the fleet. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, and a perfect example again, of improvisation ability, versatility. Um, the, the kamikaze thing sort of came out of left field. We've got these Corsairs, let's qualify them for carrier flight. And uh, that, that was a, a, a game changer. And um, so that's another good example of that. Well, um, one of the things that uh, your piece, Andy, was on was uh, the, the, the failures of uh, the different uh, navies to, um, and the um, ad hoc alliance to work together very effectively. And a lot of this was the rushed nature of it, but it was also cultural and whatever political. Um, but there was also some inter ally. There was also some um, operability issues between the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy. Correct? Uh, you, you mentioned how uh, MacArthur was counting on um, Admiral Hart's submarines, was Admiral Hart was counting on MacArthur's air wing to protect his submarines, and as you say, both ended up being bitterly disappointed. Um, some of the sort of folklore of the Pacific War is the the U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps' um, interoperability. Um, sometimes there's friction there. Sometimes, obviously, it's a well-oiled machine. I mean, the outcome speaks for itself. But um, what do you think there's anything like that that you can see in uh, Marine Air and just in a general state? Maybe not so much as in your article. Uh, M Marine Air's role and interfacing with the Navy. They're very much working, with, you know, helping the Navy, the fleet itself at sea. Uh, were there any kind of issues about that, or was it just sort of we're doing what we need to do? Well, I mean, in the in the era that the that my paper covers. Well, I'm actually asking Pete. Oh, you're asking yeah, Pete. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to link your two articles. See what I did Sorry. there, folks? <laughs> yeah, I'm not qualified to answer that as much as, as, much as Pete is. Yep. Well, 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 certainly part of the problem that I that I see from, uh, and, and Andy was kind enough to share his paper with me, so I read it this morning, uh, okay. and, and, it, and it's excellent, Andy. I, I really enjoyed it, and, it, and it's a great topic. But for what I was taking away there was the, the air support that didn't really do the ABDA Naval Surface Command any good was not 
U.S. Navy aircraft. It wasn't U.S. Marine Corps aircraft. It was, it was Army. Army Air Forces and and maybe Australian or British mm -hmm. Air Forces. Uh, Andy mentioned there, you know, there was a, a PBY, uh, which I assume was U.S. Navy, yes. which provided essential scouting. Uh, but other than that, you know, there was no fighter protection for the fleet mm -hmm. being provided by anybody ashore or afloat. Mm -hmm. uh, there was nobody doing strike operations yeah. to, to help them and give them, you know, reach. So, uh, yeah, there, that was definitely a deficiency. So so maybe the takeaway from ABDA is, you know, if they just had a few Marines flying overhead. <laughs> but they, there you they, go. They, yeah, there you, you really needed aircraft carriers. I mean, they needed a better fleet for one thing. But right. that you know that that also the U.S. had so few carriers at the time that they may have very well have been sacrificed. I mean, that would may not have been a good place. Yeah. To, to employ them, uh, on an air power, something that, that I found fascinating was that um, MacArthur had this idea, and, and so did the Army Air Force, that the B-17 was this wonder weapon. It was this high-tech bomber. Uh, the flying fortress it couldn't be shot down it would get through it would it would obliterate it would use it on bombing raids to Formosa that it would destroy the Japanese Navy at sea well most of the B-17s were, were shot up on the ground at Clark Field and the other ones that survived they didn't anywhere near live I mean the zeros could shoot them down without too much too much issue uh, so th this dependence on on a, on a wonder weapon for one thing was was obviously uh, misguided, uh, and then uh, you had this always had this tension between General MacArthur working in the Southwest Pacific. Eventually, when he goes to Australia, uh, and and unfortunately, you know, Corregidor falls in in May of 1942. So he establishes the Southwest Pacific Command, and then Nimitz gets the Pacific Ocean area. The bigger chunk, which is the uh, Central Pacific and North Pacific, and, and he's in Hawaii. So there's still always this tension between them, and between trying to divvy up the forces and strategically later on uh, in the war, are we going to fight a war going up the Sol Solomon's chain and New Guinea and Bismarck Islands and approach the Philippines from the southwest, or are we going to come through the, the the traditional what's called the through ticket that the Naval War College had been gaming for? In the interwar period, we're going to go through the central island chain, and uh, and for, and Nimitz, uh, I think, and the Joint Chiefs, uh, Admiral King, were brilliant in this idea that well, we're going to do both, and we're going to keep the Japanese so confused and so preoccupied they won't know where we're coming from. So there was a, he had the same fleet would 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 transition between Spruance as the fifth fleet and the third fleet under Halsey, and and they just kept the tempo of operations continuously through. Once they had the logistic ability in late 43 going into 44, they had these new that the new fast carriers, new fast battleships, auxiliary carriers, and the whole uh, logistics and, and fleet train coming in that really the Japanese were doomed. At, I mean, they were probably doomed after the declaration of war in, on December 8th, but right. ultimately. But uh, this, you know, militarily, you know, once they, once, uh, we had taken Tarawa and then uh, Anawitak, and, and uh, uh, we were well into their central defensive perimeter, mm -hmm. and they had no way to, to get us out. And they declined, you know, the, this big Mahanian battle that was supposed to take place. They 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 purposely ran from that. They would they didn't want to wait. They wanted to wait until they could have tricked us so badly that if there was going to be a big fleet conflict, it would be somewhere near the home islands. But um, and that was always the disappointment between Nimitz and Spruance. They want, they were battleship guys. They wanted to have a battleship fleet-to-fleet -fleet action, but 
Just one more for history, please. It never came about. Well, it did. Well, you know, Ollendorf got it at uh, uh, in the in in the Philippines. So that yep. that was the last there big, you go. the last big gunfight. But uh, uh, so anyhow, I'll, let me put in a word in for Spruance. He had a great appreciation for marine aviation, even though he was a black shoe, so-called admiral. Uh, at the War College, he studied uh, aviation. Uh, and also, he had the Marines would come into the War College and talk about amphibious warfare as well. So he was well schooled in that when he when he was the chief of staff for Nimitz in, in 1943, and uh, and he was of course uh, give, he's given credit for being the victor of the Battle of, Mid- of Midway, taking over from Fletcher. Uh, we took over from Halsey. Halsey had a terrible case of shingles, and they were good friends. Halsey actually recommended him to be the uh, the commander, but. Midway, but I'm getting way off my topic. That's okay. It's all, it's all interesting. It's, believe me, I do this all day. It's easy to do. But you mentioned the Solomons, and that factors heavily in uh, your article, Pete. Um, the, the heaviest concentration of marine air activity is during the Solomons campaign from 1942 on for like a year and a half or so. It, it was. I, I, about 30% if you measure it in squadron months. That's not a DOD term. That's something I came up with for my research. But that's the what one squadron did for one month. So about 30% of the marine aviation effort in the Pacific was in the Solomons. And, and the majority of marine squadrons rotated through there at some point. And, and you have to think of the Solomons not as just Guadalcanal from August of 1942 to about February of 43, but as a progression of operations from, you know, from Guadalcanal to the Russell Islands to Vela La Vela, all the way up uh, to Bougainville. And then, and then with the objective being the neutralization of Rabaul. And if you look at it, that becomes, as you said, Eric, about an 18-month operation. And during that time, yes, the Marine Corps is operating from these jungle islands uh, off these airfields, and they're helping the naval command that has responsibility for the Solomons as part of a joint combined air force, which has Army, Navy, Marine, and New Zealand aircraft in it, gain and maintain air superiority and conduct strikes, conduct a lot of strikes, conduct strikes against Japanese airfields as part of the air campaign, but also to hit ships to keep them from reinforcing or evacuating their or supporting their Japanese garrisons. And then, yes, hitting targets on the ground. Most of the targets on the ground they hit were deep targets because even though the Marine Corps had aspirations of close air support in 1942 and 43, between the jungle terrain and the infancy of the coordination measures and the organizations, they really weren't ready for prime time. So there's some really good experimentation that gets done. Marine Corps learns a lot. They provide some beneficial support to the landing forces, particularly uh, on, um, uh, on New Georgia and on Bougainville. But it's not what the Marine Corps had in mind. You know, when A.A. Cunningham said the only purpose of anybody to have aviation is support troops on the shore, this is not the realization of that. That realization comes on Okinawa much later. Mm -hmm. Well, I think reality stepped in uh, to that um, Cunningham's idea. And sometimes the reality of the moment calls for you to be a little more, as they were, improvisational. Well, um, let's get back to the lessons learned from all this. and let's apply, okay, we, we both, both of you looked at the Pacific Theater, so let's look at the Indo-Pacific today. And um, Andy, we'll start with you, um, and maybe you can um, give us some of the best takeaways for uh, today's thinkers to learn from the um, 
failure of the ABDA command. Right. So, like I said previously, CETO failed in the in the mid '70s. There really is not a formal overall organization that's similar to NATO in the Pacific. So we have individual um, alliances and defense uh, arrangements with South Korea, with Japan, uh, with. Um, we have one that's still in effect with the Philippines, but it all depends on who's running the Philippines and whether or not anything will ever, ever happen with it. We have uh, older alliances going back with Great Britain and Australia. As I mentioned, New Zealand is no longer part of that, but they would be welcome back under the right circumstances, I'm sure. So you have this um, sort of network of, of disparate and not well-connected alliances and, and we call them partnerships as well. So we have relationships with people out there, but how well integrated they really are as a civilian writing from the Midwest, <laughs> I don't really know. But only mm -hmm. only what I mean, I I read the USNI, uh, uh, you, you know, in proceedings religiously, but there's only so much I could, that, you know, that I can glean out of that. So I'm hope. so my recommendation to this was that we do in the, uh, we have at the Indo-Pacific Command right now a four-star admiral, uh, and he's headquartered pretty much in the same place where SyncPAC uh, was head headquartered back in, in World War II. Uh, and my suggestion is that they bring in um, as, as many uh, high-ranking personnel from these, uh, these uh, allied countries and associated countries and, and get them integrated into uh, a, commonal a commonality of tactical doctrine, strategic doctrine, uh, sharing uh, as much secret code information as, as we can. There is a five-nation uh, information sharing organization that still exists in the Pacific. Uh, so that is a, another thing that can be built on. Um, but basically not to wait until, you know, the, uh, the flight, you know, the, 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 a war starts and then try to improvise uh, pulling all these people together. Which is just what ABDA-COM was, right? Right. Yeah, it's already started, and we're now trying to scramble this together. So uh, let's get, move on to uh, you, Pete. What would you say are the greatest takeaways from the Marine Air and World War II experience for today's Indo-Pacific? Well, I'm going to take a spin off what Andy said. Perfect. Andy, you were emphasizing integration and, and having being prepared or already integrated before having to improvise on the outside of hostilities, right? Well, I think what marine aviation gave folks in World War II, what it gave the fleet was a land-based air force that was already integrated with the fleet as part of the fleet marine force. So, yes, you could probably say, well, you know, we could have just put Army planes or Navy planes on those jungle airstrips, and they did at certain times. But what you get with Marine Corps aviation is you is you get something that's already part of the Navy. So, so the the procedures and the communication capabilities that Andy was talking about that ABDA struggle with, certainly those already existed between Marine aviation and, and the Navy fleet offshore. But also you have to remember that because Marine Corps aviation is part of naval aviation, they shared logistics, they shared supply, they shared maintenance. So they were more interoperable. And then later in the war, when it came time, it's like, hey, we want Marine aviation to fly off carriers that all that required was some carrier qualification training the aircraft were already capable to assist the systems were already in place to do that uh, and the Navy was able to sustain those aircraft at sea already so that interoperable uh, capability is something that I was part of the versatility that was part of the the important uh, versatility of marine aviation in the Second World War 
Mm -hmm. Just throw in something there on, on interoperability. It was the Royal Navy, though, that actually devised how they do the folding wings on the Corsairs. That's mm. my understanding. I, I believe that's kind of true, but I'm not going to footnote myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd give them. So the Corsair wasn't initially wasn't considered to be a, a carrier operable aircraft for various reasons. So we were giving them to the British, and they oh, they yeah. modified it so the wings could could be folded and, and stowed. Well, it, yeah, and that's my understanding. So yep. you, you know better. Yeah, and I know. Well, I know that Marine squadrons often got uh, Corsairs that didn't have folding wings mm -hmm. because the Navy said, well, they're not right. going to need folding wings. But the ones, the, the initial Corsair design did have folding wings, I think, but it did have a lot of problems operating off carriers with, um, uh, with struts, uh, especially the tail wheel collapsing mm -hmm. due, due, and things like that. And, and it had a stall problem uh, that had to be corrected, which had all been corrected by 1945 when they started to push mm -hmm. Marines at sea. Well, a lot of this uh, touches to what's always my favorite takeaway when looking at the Pacific War was how it's constant learning from mistakes. Um, it's trial and error tore all the way to victory, you know, all the way from the very beginning, all the way. They're still learning, and everything keeps getting better. And that's that's why 43, 44, we're looking at a whole different picture than we were in 41, 42. And there's so many examples of that. We've had many of them bandied about just this morning, talking right now. Well, folks, I'm glad we were able to get all together. We're all in the same building. Uh, uh, I congratulate the two CNO Naval History Essay Contest winners in the professional category. Lieutenant Colonel Pete Owen, U.S. Marine Corps retired. Uh, look for his article on Marine Air in the January-February issue of Naval History. And Andy will be in the magazine and uh, one of the 2023 issues as well with his wonderful piece on the ABDA command in 1942. Um, congratulations, gentlemen, to both of you, and thank you for joining us here today. This has been a great talk. Great conversation. Thank That's you. it for us, folks. Um, thank you for uh, joining us again for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Um, I say until next time, if you're not a member of the Institute, please join uh, and just go online to usni.org and become part of the conversation, the ongoing conversation we have about Naval issues past, present, and future. Um, I'm Eric Mills signing out for Naval History. Uh, until the next time, fair winds and following seas.